Good morning. And as we get started, I get an email from one of our class members who has uh, gone away to uh, for some further uh, job and educational purposes, Ben Foote, you know Ben, and he emailed this week and said that he's out on the West Coast and wanted every wanted me to tell all of you hi for him, and so why don't we all tell Ben hello, one, two, three, hello Ben, alrighty, good, Ben, we miss you, all right. Um, we have a prayer request. Many of you know Wes Tucker, a member of our class. His father passed away last night, and um, he's asked us to remember him in prayer and his family in prayer. So let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. Uh, this Christmas season, we think about um, your, your mission and your coming to earth because of your love and compassion for us. And, And we uh, pray for Wes and his family that you will send your spirit to them to bring comfort to them in this time of grief. We look forward to the day when you return and all sorrows will return to joy and our loved ones will be raised again and we will join you in the clouds. We pray for that day. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing a new quarterly. The quarter title is Jesus Wept, The Bible and Human Emotions. Look at our introduction to this, this quarter. In the first paragraph, that we read this sentence. One could argue justifiably that emotions rule our lives to a much greater extent than reason does or ever could. And I wondered your thoughts about that, that idea, that, that statement. True, I hear some people saying true. Sad but true. Sad but true, true, sad but true. Okay, um, it, would you say it's true that the, a majority of people are ruled by their emotions? Mm-hmm. I think I think you can make the argument for the all the way up to the or, all the way up to the or. Um, but what do you think about the idea that uh, one could argue justifiably that that emotions rule our lives more than reason and reason ever could? No. See, I, I think that argument is 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 false. I think, in fact, um, come let us reason together. Though your sins are scarlet, be white like snow. Um, is it God's design? Is it God's original design for humankind that emu- em- emotions should rule over reason? No. So, will it be His plan for restoring us in eternity future that our emotions will rule over reason? No, reason to rule over over emotion, she says. So um, I think we could argue in the world of sin that um, one could justifiably argue that emotions rule over our lives in a much greater extent than reason does here in a world of sin. I think you could make that argument. But I I didn't like the idea of or ever could because I think we're to be moving through God's grace. I mean, if you look at the fruits of the Spirit, that when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and begins working and transforming and regenerating, we get certain traits of character. And the last fruit of the Spirit is self-control, uh, not out of control. Yes, Han. I was going to say, then, if we're a reflection of God, if that's how it was, then God would operate an awful lot out of control, out of his emotions. And I sure would be in trouble. Would operate with his emotions in control rather than his reason. Yeah, if yeah. He went by that theory. Yes, yes, and and of course some some actually present him that way, don't they? Yeah, as a moody deity. It says in James one that no one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone, nor is he tempted by evil. Each one is tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires or emotions. And so we have the scripture telling us that our emotions are an avenue through which we are tempted. And it tells us in uh, John that uh, it is truth that sets us free. Um, so if emotions can lead us into temptation, as James 1 tells us, should, should, if we can help it, allow them to rule over our reason? Should we allow that? No. no. Jesus is supposed to rule over us. Jesus was to rule over us. Did you all know that feelings can lie? <laughs> that feelings can lie, emotions can lie. That you can have an emotion uh, that is powerful and it's one hundred percent false. Did you know that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Any anybody want to give an example? <laughs> no. If you think of one, throw it out there. Um, if that's the case, then should we rely on our feelings for our actions and decision making? How about our feelings to form our internal beliefs about the world? We feel it a certain way, so so that's what we believe is true. You know, I have patients that feel worthless. So then, therefore, they conclude they are worthless. Or they feel ugly, so then they must be ugly. 
Should, the, should we form our, our beliefs based on the way we feel? No. Hmm. Um, what about impressions? Are impressions different than feelings? You know, can we trust our impressions? I was impressed. You've heard this one? I was impressed. I was impressed to call you and remind you of your sin. You know the impressions people get. Um, how about impressions from the Holy Spirit? Should we trust those impressions? God told me to. God told me. I was impressed. I had this impression. The Holy Spirit convicted me. Should we trust them? This is out of uh, Testimonies to the Church, Volume 2, page 505. There are some unconverted ministers who have occasionally a flight of feeling which gives them the impression that they are indeed children of God. This dependence upon impressions is one of the special deceptions of Satan. Whoa. Or how about this one? Um, Acts of the Apostles, page 279. Impressions alone are not a safe guide to duty. The enemy often persuades men to believe that it is God who is guiding them, when in reality they are following only human impulse. Remember James 1, our feelings, our desires lead to temptation. We can create impressions based on our desires. Or how about this one? Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 4, page 152, or Great Controversy, 193. Counterfeit holiness, spurious sanctification, is still doing its work of deception. Under various forms, it exhibits the same spirit as in the days of Luther, diverting minds from Scripture and leading men to follow their own feelings and impressions rather than to yield obedience to the law of God. This is one of Satan's most successful devices to catch, to cast reproach upon purity and truth. Any thoughts so far? I've got a couple more. I think they're really cool as we read these. Yeah. Impressions. Yeah. But, so is it wrong when sometimes you feel the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart to do things? Is that an impression, an emotion, a feeling? What is it? If it's according to his word. Even if it's, okay, it's according to his word, but you feel the Holy Spirit impression to do something. Uh, should we... Sh- uh, she's asking, is it wrong if you have an impression from the Holy Spirit? Are you wrong to have an impression from the Holy Spirit? Can the Holy Spirit impress us? Yes. Yes. So are we wrong to have impressions? No, not wrong to... But, but if, it, if we move on emotions and impressions, is it wrong to move on that, to act on that impression or emotion, whatever? What do y'all think? Yes. Well, the Bible says in First John... Is it 4-1, and then we should test the spirits. So everything uh-huh. that comes to us, it needs to be, that's why we need to be coming and reasoning, so that we'll know whether those impressions follow the Bible or not. Okay, so in conjunction with these two points, let's read the next quote, and we're gonna, I want to bring this back together, see if this throws light on that. We must go to the people with the solid word of God. And when they receive that word, the Holy Spirit may come, but it always comes, as I have stated before, in a way that commends itself to the judgment of the people. So we get an impression from the Holy Spirit, but will the Holy Spirit go against the judgment, your judgment, your, your good reasoning powers? Yes. I can only speak from my own experience, but when the Holy Spirit tells me to do something and I don't do it, it's usually because of my emotions. Oh, Okay. So you're uncomfortable with maybe what the Spirit's prodding you to do emotionally. Um, I, th- I, think, I think we could give examples of that. Um, for those of you who've, who've, who've read my, my book, I, I describe the higher faculties of the mind that our judgment is made up of two components. One is your ability to reason, and the other is your conscience. And the conscience is the faculty through which the Holy Spirit gives this conviction. And we get imbalanced when we use either one alone. When we use conscience alone, we do things that are, well, think about it. People that drank the Kool-Aid in, in Jonestown were conscientious, or people at, at Waco were conscientious. And you, the story in my book of, about conscientious people who won't take medicine because they feel it's a sin to take medicine, but they, they die of their illness because they won't take the medicine to cure the illness. They're, they're conscientious but unreasonable. Conversely, people who use reason but have no conscience become sociopaths. So our judgment is a combination of both. This is suggesting when we go on impressions alone. Impressions without reason is dangerous, yes. The problem I see here is the fact of how are you to determine or how are you to know that it is the Spirit who is impressing you, the Holy Spirit, and therefore that would have to call in the faculty of reasoning. Yeah, I love that. How would you know if you get an impression, whether it's the impression of the Spirit or the impression of the false Spirit? And I've, I've had this conversation with people, and they go, you can just tell. 
You can just tell. You can just tell in your spirit. What about Abraham when he was asked to sacrifice Isaac? That wouldn't have seemed reasonable. Well, it depends on what your perspective was. She says, what about Abraham when asked to sacrifice Isaac? She said, it wouldn't seem reasonable. It depends on your perspective, what was being accomplished there. Abraham had asked God to help him understand God more and what God would be doing. In this this request from, from God to Abraham was to put Abraham in the position of having a great appreciation for the sacrifice God would be making. And if you understand, it was never about sacrificing Isaac. It was about giving Abraham an experience. But yet, in the act of that, what he was told to do was totally contrary to what God normally, that's what the heathen people did offer their children. God didn't do that. So yep. it seemed contrary to what God would have wanted them but, to do. But the difference between Abraham and what we're talking about today is Abraham was having conversations with God, not impressions from God. These weren't just emotions, he was actually conversing. Remember, God came to him and spoke to him in the form of a man talking to him one on one? That's not the same thing as an impression. Yes. Well, the example of Samuel, he didn't recognize God calling him, and um, he was he went to his priest, and he said, "Go back and um, say, um, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth," or something like that. Uh, are we used to listening to God? That's that's the thing. Do we recognize His voice? Are we so busy with everything else distracting us that we don't even listen to Him? Excellent question, Russ. Uh, regarding the Abraham issue, didn't didn't Abraham reason that if he indeed put mm-hmm. Isaac to mm-hmm. death, that God could resurrect him? Mm-hmm. Yes, he did. He reasoned that out in his journey uh, to Mount Moriah. Uh, that by the time he got there, he was convinced that the miracle child, who he should, he should have never had at age one hundred, that was a miracle in the first place. That God wanted him to do this, God could raise him back to life. So yes, exactly. So reason was involved in that. Ne- next quote. Listen to this one. Um, you want to know things that Ellen White was afraid of? You know, she had fear in her life. Listen, what she was afraid of. I am afraid of anything that would have the tendency to turn the mind away from the solid evidences of the truth as revealed in God's word. I am afraid of it. I am afraid of it. We must bring our minds within the bounds of reason, lest the enemy come in as to set everything in a disorderly way. What is she afraid of? Things that turn us away from reason and evidence. What does that sound like? What turns us away from reason and evidence? Hysteria, emotion. You, you've all seen depicted either in books or in, in theater somewhere, the old uh, the gang mentality when they go to the lynch mob mentality. When they go to lynch somebody, the emotions are high, they're convinced somebody, and, they go, and what happens is you know, people, innocent people, have been killed because the emotions are running high. And the call for, wait, wait, step back, let's, let's look at reason. Or this one. Uh, that last quote was from Selected Messages, Volume 3. And we go again here from Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 372 through 375. It is through the word, not feeling, through the word, not feeling, not excitement, that we want to influence the people to obey the truth. On the platform of God's word, we can stand with safety. The living word is replete with evidence, and a wonderful power accompanies its proclamation in our world. So what do you think about these, this idea of relying on impressions? Do you know in certain religious movements it's very impression-driven? Now, does that mean that there are not emotions involved when you stand on solid evidences of God's Word? Give me a biblical example of emotions stemming from evidence first. People on the road to Emmaus. The men on the road to Emmaus. Do you remember on the road to Emmaus, Jesus took him through the evidences of Scripture, and after showing them the evidences of Scripture in harmony with his life, it says, did not our hearts burn within us as he revealed the truth to us? So this emotional response is part of the experience, but the way God designed it is our emotions, our heart burns within us as truth sets us free and leads us. So we're following the truth, and we have emotions as part of that process, not reversing it and putting emotions in the lead. Yes? Sounds like the process of conversion to me. That's exactly, yes, the process of conversion. True conversion is, is led via the truth. You know the truth. The truth will set you free. But then the truth reaches the heart, and there's a heart transformation, and emotions are involved in that process. One of the counterfeits is to have emotional experiences with no enlightenment, no truth. So we have these, and there's lots of very, very popular movements where people go for an experience. They go to have an emotional experience, but lights aren't going on. People aren't, aren't becoming enlightened. 
So, and then the second paragraph in our introduction uh, says, uh, on the second page of the introduction, excuse me, it says, we are today thousands of years from the tree of life. The DNA is wearing thin. We're damaged goods. And contrary to the myths of evolution, we're only getting worse. We're getting only worse. What do you think? DNA is wearing thin? How would you classify? Anybody want to venture a classification on how damaged we are? Or some thoughts on that? I thought maybe uh, some science here might be fun today. You know, in the scriptures it says, Psalms 51, that we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Is this alluding to an idea that there's a biological changes that happened after sin? Or in Matthew 13, 24 through 28, is Jesus speaking, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. When the blade sprang up and brought forth fruit, there appeared also tares, and the servants of the household came in and said, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in the field? Whence does the tares? And the man said, An enemy has done this. And then from speaking about this passage on the white and second selected messages, 288 says, Christ never planted the seeds of death in the system. Christ never planted seeds of death in the system. Satan planted these seeds when he tempted Adam to eat of the tree of knowledge, which meant disobedience to God. No noxious plant was placed in the Lord's great garden, but after Adam and Eve sinned, poisonous herbs sprang up. In the parable of the sower, the question was asked, Master, did not, did, didst not thou sow good seed in the field? Where did the tares come from? An enemy has done this. All tares are sown by the evil one. Every noxious herb is of his sowing. And by his ingenious methods of amalgamation, he has corrupted the earth with tares. What do you all think that means? We're getting worse. Ingenious methods of amalgamation. Where do you think Satan was attacking? Do you think that this, this is referring... God's creation. Do you think this is referring that prior to sin, Satan, prior to Adam's sin, Satan could not mess with the biosphere of earth. He couldn't, he couldn't mess with it. But after Adam's sin, Satan now had access to the biosphere and could begin mucking around with the code. Mm-hmm. You know which code I mean? DNA. 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 Well, let's give some examples. Viruses. Viruses, in my opinion, are evidences of sin. I don't believe viruses existed prior to sin. And the reason for that is viruses operate on the method of selfishness. What a virus does, it will infect any host cell it affects, takes over the machinery of the cell, uses the cell's machinery to produce only one thing. Me, 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 and more of me. It's virus, 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 to the point, and it does this so extensively, so exclusively, that it kills the cell... And then that cell dies and it infects the cells around it and they start doing it and it infects the cells around them and they start doing it. And if something doesn't intervene to, to stop and kill the virus, then it will ultimately kill the host and thus itself. This is what sin does. Sin is just selfish, selfish, selfish. Take, 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 take. Use up all resources until there's nothing left and you die. Selfishness, sin. And so I, I think we can make the argument that, that viruses were not part of God's creation. Well, interestingly enough, how infected do you think nature is with viruses? With viruses. In the ocean, um, in the deep seawater, it's estimated that in, in one liter of deep seawater, just one liter, there are three billion viruses in one liter of deep seawater. In coastal seawater, go out to the beach, next time you're at the beach, you think this through. <laughs> Christy. Christy said, no, I don't want to think about this. She loves the beach. Distraught. Okay. And um, in, in, in one liter of coastal water, there are 100 billion viruses in one liter of coastal water. 100 billion viruses of coastal seawater. And since the sea contains 1.4 billion cubic kilometers of water, that means that there is an estimated... Four times 10 to the 30th power viruses in the ocean. Now, that's a number we can't get our mind around. Nobody can make sense of that. Uh, but if we understand that a virus, basically the length of a virus is 0.1 microns, 0.1 micrometer. So it's, it's less than a micron. But if you take all the viruses and string them together, and now that's short, the, the length of the viruses strung together end to end would be four times 10 to the 20th kilometers, which is 42 million light years, which is 100 times the distance of the Milky Way. That's how many viruses are in the ocean. You think we've been messed with? And I, I put the reference, the the, uh, the web reference for this data that I just presented to you in the notes. So if you want to go and read more about it, you can. What about the human genome? 
Do you think the human genome has been left untouched? No. Uh, have you ever heard of something called junk DNA? Junk DNA is, is for, uh, for many years thought to be junk. I mean, they, it doesn't code for proteins. They don't find it doing anything. So they've, they've assumed that it just was nothing DNA. It appears that much of this DNA may in fact be non-human DNA that is infected human genome called transposons or transposable elements. And this is also known as jumping genes, basically. These transposons and transposable elements, this, it's, in our, it's in our DNA, move around at almost freely inside your, inside your chromosomes from gene to gene, causing havoc. Um, remember we talked some time ago about epigenetic influences and how diet and things will turn bad genes off and so forth. Healthy diets are actually suppress many of these genes that keep them from being expressed. Uh, the methylation shuts them down, caps them. But it is believed that up to 50%, half of our human genome is, are these transposable elements. Half. That's how far from God's design. Think the implications through. This can give great explanations to why we look so animalistic in so many ways. Remember, if you understand the, the spirit of prophecy and the biblical insights, that Satan wants to destroy the image of God in man and replace Satan's image where man is. Uh, it says in Scripture that these people uh, uh, became brute beasts, creatures of instincts. See, Satan wants to destroy godliness and make us like, like thoughtless animals. And you, and you, uh, you know, personally, I don't believe Adam, and, uh, Adam was, was growing a beard. Don't believe it. I don't think he had to shave. I mean, you, you take a human being today and you leave them out in the wild without the toiletry products and see what they look like after six months. I think this is a part of the, our genome being attacked. Seriously. And, and we're not like what God made Adam in the beginning. Have you ever seen some men that kind of bearish? You know what I mean? You know, other you know, there's others less less hair on the body. This has genetic differences. Um, doesn't mean there's anything different in their character. But I think our bodies, our bodies have been attacked, and we and we see this as far as diseases go. Some people are now arguing that the majority of human diseases, the majority of human diseases, are res- a result of this this these genetic things called uh, transposons. Um, thing, everything from from uh, Alzheimer's disease, and I've got a whole list of them, page of them listed in the, in the uh, multiple cancers, diabetes, um, uh, uh, vulnerability to heart attacks, epilepsy, uh, Hirschsprung's disease, uh, lymphoma, um, you know, even, even, even vulnerability to certain infections related to the fact, like, like AIDS and so forth, related to the fact that our, our system is vulnerable because of these transposons that make access points for these viruses to infect us. Yes? Um, I was watching a program the other day, and there uh, they were talking there about uh, in the Hebrew, there's no word for coincidence. And I got to think about the other day, and I was thinking, you know, that's kind of Satan's strategy. He would like us to believe in coincidences because we can't trace things back to their origin when we believe in coincidences, when we don't group patterns together and, and reason about them. And we can, I believe that we could trace viruses back to Satan just as easily as we can create, uh, as we can trace back, you know, DNA back to God. Yeah, I think so. And I, and I, so I am telling you this because uh, as, as these insights are coming more and the science is revealing, and you put your scripture understanding, great controversy understanding, you're going to be able to have insights that the nominal scientists don't have about what's happening. It's, and, and I think you're going to find that when you understand God's laws, we've described it in here, the law of love, the law of beneficence, the circle of giving, you're going to find that, that these breaches keep breaking that, causing more and more pain and suffering. Yes? Well, even in creation, like um, with the amalgamation and the flood and everything, that's a whole nother can of worms open up. She asked, uh, do I think these changes came about by meat-eating? Uh-huh. Meat-eating. Fleisch, eating the animals. Yes. Okay. Um, do I do I think that that's that's what happened? That, 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 that well, actually, there's data that suggests that is a part of it. I wouldn't say exclusively. I wouldn't say exclusively. But yes, there there is data. Um, I wasn't going to go into this because I don't have all the technical terms in my mind at the moment. But um, on the cell surfaces of uh, on our cells, there are surface proteins that are markers. And those markers identify us and, and, and not us. 
so that our immune system recognizes us from not us. And so if an invader comes in, we say, oh, not us, attack it. Um, Every animal other than humans have a gene um, that produces a particular sugar protein. Um, And I should say other than humans, we have the gene. But because of one of these transposable elements that I was mentioning, that transposable element has inserted itself right in the middle of that gene for us, so humans no longer express that gene. It's there, we don't express it. So on our cell surfaces, we don't have this, this particular protein being expressed anymore. This is one of the ways that they tell the difference between chimpanzee blood and human blood, is that if they get a blood sample, they'll look for this protein marker. If it's there, then it's chimp blood, because humans don't express this protein anymore. Anyway, um, when you eat animal products, because we have the gene for it, we were supposed to be expressing it. Sometime in, in history of humanity, this gene got turned off by this transposon, and so we don't express it anymore. But because we were designed to express it, evidently, um, when you eat animal food and you absorb the food with this protein in it, your cells absorb it and begin putting the, the protein marker out on your cells. And so the cell now is expressed, this marker is now expressed on your cells that your immune system hasn't grown up with, and so it leads to increasing risk of autoimmune diseases and other problems based on, uh, based on this. So yes, animal, animal uh, eating can be yes, part of it. But, but there's more details to that, and I think in the future I'll bring some more science in on that. Okay, yes, question. I was going to say that just listening to your thought processing there, do you think that some of these genetic changes due to the trans those transposition things, could that be the false evidence that evolution is basing? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Evolutionary theory is based on the changes that have happened because of the transposons. Absolutely. Great insight. Thank you. All right. We got to move on to our lesson now. We're going to go to lesson. We're just starting Sabbath's lesson now for our first lesson called Emotions. Okay. All that was in the way of introduction from our quarterly. First paragraph says, Emotions are a vital part of human personality. They can be powerful motivators for good or for evil. And depending on the emotions, they make us happy, sad, fearful, or joyful. Positive emotions can bring a feeling of satisfaction and well-being. Negative ones tend to cause pain and anguish. Though the first ones can promote mental health and prolonged exposure to the negative emotions may bring about behavioral and relational problems. Thus, emotions can play an important part in our overall well-being. Any thoughts? Any comments? It seemed to me they had it turned around a bit. Okay. So it's a reinforcing cycle though, isn't it? So if something happens external to you that's painful, that then can result in painful emotions. Right? How you choose to accept it. And painful emotions though that may start internal to you because you believe a lie. You go home and, and somebody has lied to you that your spouse is cheating on you and, and they're not, but you believe that lie. If you believe your spouse is cheating, will you experience some painful emotions? So either way, right? It can go either side. Yeah, okay. So as we think about God's creation of Adam and Eve in Eden, in Eden before sin, what kind of emotions do you think they experienced? Love, joy, what else? Peace, patience, all the fruits of the Spirit, she said. Do you think they experienced dread, terror, worry, anxiety? Who's going to pay the electric bill this month? Do you think they experienced those emotions? No. No. But did they have the capacity for those? You see, and, and some people say, well, why would God make him with the capacity to experience those things if, he, if it wasn't his plan? Well, um, how many of us have the capacity to feel what it's like to capacity to feel what it's like to be suffocated? We all do. How many have experienced it? Hopefully nobody. Okay? Just because we have a capacity, it's never an intention that we should experience it. And so I don't think it was God's intention that we experience fear and anxiety and all these things. It's only when something goes awry. We would only experience the emotion of suffocation if something goes terribly wrong. As long as things are going the way it's designed, we'll never experience that. And so God never designed for them to experience dread and fear and any of these things. Yes? If they didn't have the capacity to experience it, then they, they wouldn't have ran and hid because they were afraid. Well, that was after sin. Yeah. But they still had to have the capacity. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So something went terribly wrong. Um, from where, do, where do you think positive emotions arise? From where? Where do they arise? 
What contributes or gives rise to positive emotions of peace, joy, contentment, happiness? A merry heart doeth good like a medicine. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine. Okay, so positive emotions have a, a medicinal effect to bring healing to our body. I'm going to go into science of that in just a moment. But where do those positive emotions arise? What, what contributes to them? Trust, security. Trust, okay, I like that. Trust in what? God. Trust in something that's going to be there for you no matter what. You're secure. So it, certainly God would... Be you know, because the 12 steps talk about... First steps of the 12 steps were meant we're powerless. Second step is we believe there's a power higher than ourselves that can restore sanity. Trust. But as I've talked to um, people who run programs like this, um, they say, we don't mean that they have to believe in God. They can trust in their trash can if they want to. <laughs> They can trust. I had a 16-year-old who trusted in his skateboard. His skateboard was his higher power to get him through. So is it? Is it? Does it trust in anything really that brings peace? No. Oh, that's mental gymnastics, isn't it? No, trust in ultimately the, our, our Creator. Yes, yes. So I, I think you're right. What would you say gives rise to negative emotions? By the way, is it just trust that gives? gives how about altruism? How about when you genuinely do something? out of a real concern and compassion and love for another. Does that have any emotional consequence to you when you do that? Yes. Does it bring a sense of peace, joy, well-being? So when you choose to act in harmony with God's methods, when you put yourself in harmony with his principles, do you get a peace within? So it's not simply trust, and I think it's important, absolutely, but when we practice the methods that he designed for us to live on, doesn't that bring a consequence with it of, of healthier emotions? What, what, what kinds of things bring unhealthy emotions? Fear, anxiety, dread, terror, abandonment, heartache, guilt, shame. What brings that? Distrust. Blind trust. Blind trust, okay. Distrust. Distrust, okay. I guess it depends on who you're distrusting. Well, we talked about just trusting God, so now it's you distrust God. Okay, distrust God, because when Jesus didn't trust the angel of light in the wilderness, that was a good thing he didn't trust that angel of light, huh? Yes. How about an atheist doesn't even believe in God, but does good for other people? Yes. Do you think, they, do you think of an atheist who doesn't believe in God at all, genuinely out of their heart, does altruistic things because they care about others? What do you think will happen? Will they experience positive, yes. healthy changes? Yes, because God's law is non-arbitrary. God's law is non-arbitrary. If you jump off a cliff believing in God and you jump off a cliff not believing in God, will gravity care? It's going to work the same whether you believe in God or don't believe in God. The law is constant. God's law of love is a constant principle upon which he designed his universe to operate. Now, the difference is the atheist cannot, of his own human accord, with his own sense of willpower, generate true altruism. So the one who doesn't believe in God, who though may be acting in altruistic ways, those evidences, those actions of altruism are evidence of the Holy Spirit working on his heart, whether he acknowledges the Holy Spirit or not. Amen. Is that not right? Yes. Okay, and so just because a person doesn't have a conscious knowledge of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean the Holy Spirit isn't reaching out to bring his methods and principles to their heart. And there are honest people who have had presentations. Uh, you know, I've, I asked, if somebody rejects Jesus Christ, I reject Jesus Christ, will not accept him as my Savior, can they be saved? The answer is no. Lots of people say no in here. Well, ask the question, can you tell me about the Jesus that you've rejected? Well, the Mormons came and talked to me about Jesus, and, and that's the only Jesus I've ever heard about, and, and uh, I reject the, the idea of what they tell me about him, and all they, oh, well, does that mean that they can't be saved? No. Does it, Jesus said false Christ and false messiahs will go out into the world. That's the only Jesus that they've heard about is one of those, and they reject them. Does that mean they can't be saved? No. Just because someone says they reject Jesus, you need to ask, tell me about the Jesus you rejected. What do you mean you rejected him? You might find that it was, it was moving towards salvation to reject him because to accept him would have darkened their minds with all types of distorted thinking. Yeah? Possible? Yeah, how about David Koresh and the Branch Davidians? Which, which Messiah would you think they were presenting? Wasn't it Jesus Christ? That's who they were presenting. And if you rejected that version, do you think you were further away from the kingdom? No, not at all. So we have to be more thoughtful than just saying, I reject Jesus. Say, 
what what methods does this Jesus that you reject practice? Is he a God of love, of self-sacrifice, of beneficence, and, and you rather like the, the domination, control, and yes, then you're moving away from the kingdom. If on the other hand, well, I won't accept a God who is an arbitrary power monger who says, love me or I'll kill you. Oh, well, good for you. I don't accept that God either. Yeah. Um, so the underlying themes, do we not see that there's a connection between two antagonistic principles in our emotions? As we move closer to God's methods of living our life, we have more peace. If we, uh, if we move more towards the world, selfishness, watching out for me, and the more focused on ourselves we become, the more fear and anxiety we get. And the more fear and anxiety we get, it makes us more self-focused, and it's a real reinforcing cycle. So... The lesson asks us to, and we're not going to have time to read it all, but asks us to read 2 Samuel, this is Sunday's lesson, 2 Samuel 13. And we read a little bit of it. It says, In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. This is his half-sister. Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, who's uh, son of Shimea, uh, David's brother. So, this is a cousin, cousin Jonadab. Uh, Why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I am in love with Tamar, my brother's Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes in to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat uh, uh, from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar, go to the palace. Uh, Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in, sight of, uh, in his sight, and baked it. She took uh, the pan and served him bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom, so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought into her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took, him, took, it, to eat, took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. Now, that's just creepy, I have to tell you. I mean, I just hear that and I go, that's just, just creepy, okay? All right? Would you all agree with that? Yes. Ugh. Okay. Come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she said to him. Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. Oh, cool. Let's... (sighs) But he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than her, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servants and said, get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. So the servants put her out and bolted the door. And she was wearing rich garments and she tore her garments and put um, sackcloth and ashes. And Absalom found out and hated Amnon and ultimately led to the murder of Amnon and so forth. Yeah, um, the lesson asks, what emotion was motivating Amnon? And of course, the scripture says, and I don't want to quote out of context here, so it says, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in the course of a time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamnar, Tamar. And he said he loved her. So, The Bible says that he loved Tamar. The Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it. Should we believe what the Bible says? Should we? Or should we question what the Bible says? I mean, the Bible says he loved her. It must be love, right? How many believed he loved Tamar? But the Bible says he loved her. It doesn't say he loved himself and pretended that he loved her. Wasn't there many words for love in that language? You know, I don't know the answer to that question. That's what our Bible teaches. There are many different words for the word love. We have this one. 
But it could have included lust. Oh, well, we have lust in English, and I'm sure if that's the word there, the translators of these modern translations would have said he lusted after her. But it doesn't say that. If they intended lust. Hmm. I'm, I'm just throwing the question out. When we read Scripture, how should we read it? Should we believe what the Bible says? Yes. If he had followed the proper procedure, could he have married her in that day and age and been all right? I mean, mean, didn't that happen? So maybe because he did his act without having done the things that he should have done in order to have her as his wife, he then felt revulsion. Well, we're talking first the question. He loved his sister Tamar. Did he or did he not? What's the evidence for that? What's the evidence of love? Well, let's, let's talk. Tell me, what does love look like in action? If you think this is love, how many of you would like your daughters loved this way? Okay, this is not love. But the scripture says it's love. Does this give us some insight in what we need to do when we read scripture? Because how many times do we hear about God's anger and God's wrath? God was angry. God was wrath. Well, the Bible said it. That must be so. Wait, don't we need to question, not just what it says, but wait, what was going on? What's happening? Further on, it says he hated her with more hatred than he loved her. Did he hate her? Thank you, Christy. He did not hate her. He did not hate her. He hated himself. He hated his weakness. He hated the fact that she had, uh, you know, she was so attractive that he couldn't govern himself, his loss of self-governance. He hated the guilt and shame that was now on him based on, and he was projecting and blaming all of that on her. But the person he really hated was himself. There's no different than Adam and Eve. It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. She did it, not me. I'm, I'm, I'm cool. It, that evil Tamar, she seduced me. She came in here with her wiles. She was all dressed all in this, this silky stuff and turning me on. It's, it's that evil woman. She should have had the whole burqa. She wasn't wearing her burqa. Okay? I mean, this is the problem. It's her. She's evil. No. He's evil. And he can't accept it. And he projects it out on her. He hated himself. But wait. The scriptures say he hated her. Should we just accept what the scriptures say? He hated her. Or should we think through the meaning and what's transpiring? So many read scripture and they'll take passages. God's angry. God's wrathful. Well, that's the way God is. Should we think? Should we reason? Yes, and I thought this was a great story to show how scripture can say one thing and it not actually be what's, what's true. You all agree with me on my analysis here? That he didn't love her, and he really didn't hate her either. He, he, he was self-centered, and he was lusting after her, and then he hated himself afterwards and was ashamed. Any, any, anybody uncomfortable with this? Can we see this principle? Does it, does it require of us to think differently as we read Scripture on a grander scale? Yes? The mere fact that he wanted everybody out of the room... That which is done in secret certainly should be questioned. Mm. The fact that he schemed to get her there. Yeah, well, the whole scheming, plotting, lying, deceiving. Yeah. It seems to me like he was he was doing the opposite of loving her the whole time, which I would define as hate, <laughs> because he was never ever looking out for her well-being. He was always concerned about what he wanted. And that is not anything to do with love. You know, that's the opposite. Exactly. Exactly. Back there. Yeah. I understand what you're saying, and I agree with it in a lot of ways, but I'm also a little bit uncomfortable with it because I think there, it's so much more complex than that. I think there are so many more levels of love and emotions. I think as human beings, we love so imperfectly. But there's different levels of love, and I think at some level he did love her as his sister. As far as the loving as a wife, that was not there, I don't think. But as a sister, he did, but yet he loved himself more. Really? I think there's so many different levels. I think it is possible to feel something for somebody else, but yet because of selfishness, that over that trumps it, overrides it. You don't mind if I just challenge that a little bit? We're friends. We, you know, it's, it's good to have this discussion. I appreciate you throwing that out there, so I'm not picking on you at all. Uh, and this is how I hear it, okay? I think he loved her as, as a sister. How many women in here have brothers? How many would you like your brother to love you this way? Yeah. yeah. That's why there's so many different levels of it. I think there must have been something. If your brother treated you this way, would you think he loved you? No. So, you so I, I don't see brotherly love here in this story. 
Brotherly love was what Absalom, Absalom was furious and wanted to protect her. There's no protecting. There's exploiting here. I mean, I don't see protection. I see exploitation. That's not love. No, genuine, perfect love. No, I, I agree with that. It's definitely not that. But yet aren't there even parents out there who love their children, but because they're more selfish and love themselves more, they don't truly give to their children. But there is a level of love there. It's just so imperfect. Okay, let's talk about that. I get people in relationships all the time like this. And the example of women frequently in relationships in which they're in a relationship which a man mistreats them, controls them, criticizes them, runs them down, monitors what they do, but will buy them presents, will, will, will do things for them. And because of this, there's this confusion they have. Well, yes, but he loves me because he takes me here and he does that and this other thing. And I said, okay, he loves you. you know, get your mind around this. Like a cowboy loves his horse. <laughs> Think it through. Cowboy loves his horse for what his horse can do for him. His horse serves him well. And so he will be jealous of that horse. He will not want anyone else to steal it, ride it, do anything to it. He will beat somebody up who tries to get near his horse. But he never treats his horse as an equal. He never really cares about the well-being of the horse, except to keep the horse healthy to serve him. So he will give it good food. He will get it rubbed down. What? There are millions of marriages like that. That's right. It's not love. It's this selfish control. You serve me, so I love you because of what you do for me. I love you because you make my life better, and so I will do things. Yes, I'm going to send you to massage once a week. You can get your manicure. You can get your hair done, because obviously when you go out, you need to look your best when you're with me. It's all about me. It's not about you and your welfare. Yeah, there's this form, but it's not love. It's never love. It's all about self. It's, it's self gussied up in a disguise, a masquerade of love, but it's not love. And a lot of people are deceived and duped into thinking it's love. And, 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 and some parents do this with their kids. They don't love their kids for their kids' health and welfare's sake. They love their kids for what the kids make the parents look like. And to serve their own guilt. Pardon? And to serve their own guilt. And to serve their own guilt. Well, we don't have a good word for that, and that's very common. Yes. That's right. Yes, over here. You asked a question before with, if we should believe what the Bible says. And I believe we should believe what the Bible says if we read the Bible as a whole. So we can read into what the Bible says, not just read the words. Excellent. I agree with you completely. Yes. So thank you for clarifying that because I'm not suggesting the Bible is not inspired and I'm not suggesting we shouldn't believe it, but that we should rightly understand it. We shouldn't just take it at face value. We should, we should understand the meaning, not just the, the face surface words. We all agree with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, One reason why I think God put me put in the Bible that way is because he points out that type of love is not right. She told him exactly what, what kind of a person he was going to be if he continued with, with his desire. And, uh, and it shows us what God has been dealing with through human history. Exactly. Uh, In the uh, bottom half of Sunday's lesson, it asks about women uh, who have suffered rape and abuse. And and there's actually a lecture on my website, two of them, called uh, Recovering from Sexual Abuse. And I recommend anybody who's struggling with issues like that to listen to that lecture because it goes through a lot of of, uh, insights on what happens to the mind, how the mind is, is messed up, how emotions, when somebody's been through a trauma like this, your emotions will stir up. The negative emotions will infect the thinking and people draw all types of distorted beliefs that are false that contribute to ongoing mental health problems. But on the website, under the media menu, under seminars, and then under healing the mind, you'll find lectures there uh, called Recovering from Sexual Abuse. Uh, Let's see, top uh, paragraph in Monday's lesson talks about the negative emotional states such as hatred, worry, fear, rage, jealousy produce immediate psychological response, pounding heart, tense muscles, dry mouth, cold sweats, butterflies in the stomach, and so forth. Long-time exposure can mean uh, cardiac and digestive problems. Actually, I want to take you through some of that about how our emotions affect us. In 2006, American Journal of Psychiatry article uh, was entitled, The Rate of Depression Markedly Increased Over the Last 10 Years. And there's something toxic about Western society, particularly American society, to your mental health. And they actually looked at the uh, data from 1991-92 to 2001-2002, looking at the rates of depression. And in U.S. adults, depression increased from 3.3% to 7.06% in 10 years. So more than doubled in 10 years the, the number of people in America that are depressed. And what's going on with that? The U.S. increased its wealth in the last 40 years to one of the wealthy, basically the wealthiest nation on earth. 
but e- even though it's become the wealthiest nation, um, it is near the bottom in happiness. Uh, U.S. ranks 157 among 173 nations that were rated for the happiness of their people. So we're rich, but unhappy. Reminds me of Revelation, doesn't it? Rich and full of goods, but they're really poor, miserable, blind, and naked. The farther away from a park a person lives, the higher their risk of depression. Did you know that? The far away from some nature or park. If you live in a city and you're far away. When stressed out, our brains activate our immune, our inflammatory cascade through two different pathways. One's through pituitary gland and, and, um, activating the adrenal glands to release stress hormones called cortisol. And the other's through the neural circuitry called the locus ceruleus, activating the release of epinephrine or adrenaline throughout your body. And this then, uh, activates the immune system. And in your immune system, you have two general immune responses. What's called the innate immune response and what's called the acquired immune response. The innate immune response, imagine it this way. And so if you think about your immunity first, think about the National Guard to our country. We have a National Guard that is ready to attack any invaders that invade our country to protect us from invasion. Your immune system is like your National Guard. It is there, ready to attack any invaders that invade your body to protect you from invasion and infection. That's what it's doing. And um, if somebody, uh, the innate immunity is the immunity that comes under an acute stress. Uh, you're out walking in the, in the park, and a, up in, let's say the Smokies, and a bear uh, starts chasing you down, down, the, down the road. Immediately, what kind of emotional reaction will you get? Fight or flight. Well, you get stressed at that moment. Okay, you're, you're, those two things I just mentioned, you're going to get cortisol release and you're going to get the epinephrine release. When that happens, it turns on your innate immune system. It basically calls your National Guard and said, get ready, we're about to get invaded. Why? Because if you get in a f- struggle with a bear and live, do you think you might have been scratched or clawed or bitten, possibly? Okay, your system may have been invaded. Foreign bacteria and stuff may have gotten in. So as soon as you get stressed, you call your immune system to turn on your National Guard to prepare for invasion. Now, the problem with this is the innate immunity is very much like a shotgun. So if you have somebody break into your house and you have a shotgun and you're trying to defend yourself and you blast the invader in your house with a shotgun, do you just get the invader or you damage your house too? Okay, this is what innate immunity does. And I'm going to walk through some of the, the stuff here. But what, it will attack and destroy invaders, but it also damages the body. It gets collateral damage. Now, your acquired immunity is things we get vaccines for, your antibodies. And acquired immunity is like a sniper's bullet. Okay, it identifies a specific invader. And whenever it sees that one, it shoots that one and that one only. That's your, that's your antibodies. And it attacks just the specific things. That's your acquired immunity. Um, and it doesn't really respond so much to the stress. It's the innate immunity that is stress-mediated. Now, there are two general automated nervous systems. Now, you know the nervous system we talk about in here all the time is your thinking and your reasoning, your conscious awareness. But below that, you have uh, an automated system that's on go that keeps you breathing. When was the last time you had to think to breathe? It's all automatic, automatically driven by your autonomic nervous system or your gastric motility, digesting your food, moving the food through your intestines. Okay, This is all going on without you ever thinking about it. Or your heart rate, uh, your blood pressure. All these things are being modulated. Your, your body temperature, uh, whether you uh, sweat or don't sweat to cool yourself and keep your temperature right, all automated for you. Aren't you glad you don't have to every day be adjusting the thermostat on your body like you do your house? Okay, Isn't that nice? It's very nice. Well, we have two ways. One is called the, the uh, sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight-or-flight one, which in times of stress gears everything up. It calls your, your National Guard, your innate immune system to get ready for invasion and kicks up your heart rate and picks up your blood pressure and, and, and takes the blood out of your digestive system into your muscles because you've got that bear chasing you and your, and your sympathetic nervous system is saying, get ready to, to fight or flight and, bump, and jumps glucose into your bloodstream so you have energy to do that. The parasympathetic nervous system is just the opposite. It calms everything down. It slows your heart rate. It slows, uh, um, it moves the blood into the intestines and, the, and so forth so you can digest well. It relaxes everything. It lowers blood pressure. Okay? That's what the parasympathetic is doing. When you, when we, um, when we activate our sympathetic nervous system, now which, what do you think it's activated? The calming nervous system parasympathetic or the, the alert alarm circuitry? When um, you're stressed out, when you're worried, 
when you're afraid, when you're insecure, when you believe that somebody's cheating on you, when you're being plotted against, uh, when these types, when you believe lies. What kind of, what kind of act, activation, when you're guilt-ridden, when you're, when you're feeling ashamed, what kind of circuitry do you think you're activating? Sympathetic, parasympathetic? Sympathetic. Sympathetic, yes. And if you activate this circuitry, you're going to activate your, not just the adrenaline and all these other things, and uh, you're going to activate your National Guard, your innate immunity. And what happens is the macrophages begin releasing what's called cytokines, and the cytokines cause your body temperature to rise. This is why, uh, and the reason they do this is to help fight infections. A general sense, shotgun blast, bacteria and viruses don't live well in higher temperatures. So if you heat up the body environment, fever, you get a fever, fever helps fight infection. You all know that, right? Okay, if you, if you suppress the cytokines so you don't have fever, m- mammals and, and reptiles will die of infection. They can't fight the infection without the fever. So the cytokines help elevate the fever, cause elevation in body temperature. They uh, slow digestion. They affect the uh, whole, whole system, cause loss of appetite so we don't eat as much. They also impair concentration, focus, and suppress mood. We get more grumpy and moody and irritable. I mean, last time you were sick with a virus or something, check your mood. You didn't feel good, did you? You didn't concentrate well. These are all the inflammatory cascade because it's, it's a shotgun approach to the whole system to try to protect you. Well, same pathways are activated as, as an, uh, an infection. It happens the same inflammatory cascade that happens if you're infected. happens when you're stressed. And guess what else? Obesity increases inflammation, causes the same cas- cascade. Sedentary lifestyle, not exercising and sitting around all the time, will turn on the inflammatory cascade. Social isolation, uh, being isolated from people, not interacting, will cause inflammation. Uh, unhealthy diets like trans fats, you've heard about trans fats, causes inflammation. Sleep deprivation causes the sympathetic nervous system to activate and it causes the inflammatory cascade increasing inflammation. So... Um, you find it, isn't this, isn't this fascinating? And meditation, meditation on the God's character of love, activates the parasympathetic nervous system. It slows the heart rate. It calms the blood pressure. It brings a sense of peace and well-being. It actually has a healing. Merry heart, doeth good, like a medicine. It's absolutely well-documented and true. Last thing on the immune system, there, there are different types of cells. Think about this. You've got your National Guard, and you've got different, different uh, officers that will direct the, the National Guard on what to do. Uh, the, there are three I want to mention, T-helper cells, or two I'll mention, T-helper cells and, and T-regulatory cells. The T-helpers, the T1s, fight things like tuberculosis. You get a tuberculosis infection, these guys will call your immune system to attack it. But when it goes wrong, when things go wrong, the T-helpers could become overactive and cause autoimmune diseases like arthritis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, fibromyalgia, because the T helpers are overactive, T1 helpers. T2 helpers fight things like worm infections, helminth infections, and when they go wrong and they're upregulated, it causes allergies, like allergies to molds and, and foods and things like that, these allergies. And then the T regulatory cells, they're the ones who are basically, the T, the T helpers are calling for an attack, attack, attack. T regulatory Cease fire. Cease fire. Everybody, go home, calm down. That's the T regulatory cells. When, they fight, when they're active, they, they calm the entire immune system to, and, and suppress allergies and autoimmune disorders. Guess what? In your childhood, your exposures in childhood will determine to a great set the rest of your life how your T regulatory and T helper cells are set. And veterinary studies, get this, reveal that the lack of worms in dogs is a setup for immune disorders in people. <coughs> because if you grow up with dogs that have worms, you will likely get at least one worm infection sometime in your life. And when you have worms as a kid, it turns on your T-regulatory cells and calms your allergic response and autoimmune. So kids who've had worms have less allergies, less asthma, less uh, this kind of stuff than kids who don't. The number one predictor, the number one predictor... Uh, of a low, uh, there's a protein that, that, that is a marker for inflammation. It's called C-reactive C- protein. The number, and, and if it's low, you have low inflammation, low allergies, okay? The number one predictor of a low C-reactive protein, which means low inflammation in adults, is the amount of animal feces in a home when you were a child. The more animal feces in your home when you were a kid, then the lower your, uh, your immune system, the lower your inflammation and immune disorders when you're an adult. And the reason why we, we, the reason, seriously, look around society, look when you were kids, look when you were kids, and look today. 
Today, parents are hyper, hyper vigilant on um, basically boiling everything. Nothing will touch that kid. When I was a kid, I crawled around the house and it was on the floor, went in my mouth. I, I, you know, in the 60s and the, I mean, you guys remember, okay? My mother's going to tell you, it's the truth. I don't, I don't really have much problem with all this autoimmune stuff. Um, but today we've got this hyper thing. No germs should ever touch a kid. No, the immune system needs some exposure to actually understand what's friendly, what's not friendly, what's really harmful, what's not, so it can set itself to not attack things that shouldn't be attacked. Anyway, we don't have time to go through the rest of the lesson this week, but I thought you'd find that interesting because stress, chronic worry, chronic stress, activates the whole sympathetic nervous system, causes whole inflammatory cascade, leads to a lot of physical illnesses and diseases, and yet a healthy spirituality and belief in in a God of love and practicing methods of altruism actually do the opposite. It calms the sympathetic system, uh, activates the parasympathetic system, and brings a sense of physical health and well-being. Yes, one comment. What was the happiest country? The happiest country was Denmark. Denmark. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth as you revealed it in Jesus, your methods of love, your methods of beneficence, your methods of altruism. May we understand and and trust you to watch out for the outcomes of our lives so we can stop being so fearful and so preoccupied with ourselves that we can be uh, real participants of your kingdom to receive your goodness, your blessings, and let that flow through us to others that we can be conduits of your grace and love and experience your healing and your positive emotions of joy and peace and fruits of the Spirit. We pray in your holy name. Amen.